Welcome to a breath of fresh earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. Hi, and welcome to episode two. There's a lot of talk about wind power. Let's look at some of the facts. Here's the good news. The cost of wind energy keeps falling. Business is growing and putting people to work. Cities around the world are looking at the benefits of wind power, finding them hard to ignore. Wind energy produces no emissions, no pollution. It's clean, and it's an unlimited resource. For farmers, the wind, a wind farm gives them a new crop to sell. Here's kind of a short version of how it works. Each landowner who allows a turbine on their field receives three to $7,000 a year for each turbine. Wind farms usually consist of somewhere between 50 and 100 turbines. They're all connected by buried wires that link them up to a central transmission. The turbines are mounted on a high metal tower. You've all seen that. The turbines run in offset lines, so they're not lined up directly in a row. They, they skip some space about a half a mile apart so they don't steal each other's wind. Farmers grow crops. Animals can graze underneath the turbines while the, they're humming along. Wind energy went from a little over 2% of the United States electricity mix in 2010 to almost 7% last year. It's also one of the cheapest ways to produce energy. Now it's even less than natural gas. Why are farmers turning to wind? A lot of them have gone bankrupt. The bankruptcy rates in 2019 jumped 20% for farmers. It's an eight-year high. The trade war didn't help. Low prices for commodity crops and unpredictable weather. Those are all factors that, that affect farmers. One farmer in Iowa said, wind is just another crop, another opportunity to capture resources. This is a tough energy problem for Republicans to deal with because 90% of the wind farms are in traditional red states where oil and gas are king. As I've mentioned before and will continue to say, times are changing. The number one wind energy state in the country is Texas, where wind electricity generated 22 percent of the state's energy needs last year. That's higher than coal. Oklahoma, Iowa, and Kansas are next on the list. There's a project going on in Arizona right now near Winslow where wind farms are going to help generate 15 percent of the state's energy requirements in the next five years. Those turbines are going to be huge, 750 feet high. Generally speaking, the higher the turbine means more wind, which produces more power. In New Mexico, they're building a wind farm with blades 470 feet high. Just as a point of reference, Big Ben in London, that's about 300 feet high. project in New Mexico is, is going to provide energy for almost 200,000 homes. Now, to be fair, wind farms are not perfect. The wind fluctuates. Recycling old wind turbines are difficult, and we need to recycle thousands of them every year. 99% of internal parts can be recycled, but the blades are made to last. They keep getting bigger and longer, like I just talked about. Companies are finding creative ways to deal with the old blades, using them for sound barriers like they do in Denmark. Germany has a reprocessing plant that recycles the blades into materials used for cement. Another problem is the turbines can't be located too close to homes due to the noise from the blades. The blades are responsible for killing birds. There's no denying that. The exact total is impossible to count, but you can be sure that way more birds are being killed by toxic poison in the air from fossil fuels than from wind turbines. To some, the wind farms are an eyesore. To me, they're beautiful. 
because it shows until we find the perfect energy solution, energy from wind is clean and unlimited. It proves that we can adapt. And if the climate crisis shows us anything, it shows we must adapt. That reminds me, I've been expecting a call. I'm not the Messiah! Oh, I'm not the gosh, I'm really sorry to do this right at the beginning of the podcast, but I'm expecting important news from my doctor, and he's calling on the phone. And I hate to start the recording over again or do a whole bunch of editing. Can you guys just, like, hold on one second while I take this call from my doctor? Thanks. I knew you'd understand. Hello, doctor? Yeah, it's Rick. Oh, I see. You have bad news. I was really looking forward to doing this show for a long time. I'm going to put you on speakerphone so my fans can hear your diagnosis at the same time I do. We're all in this together, so you guys please pray for me. I'm afraid I have bad news. You have wind cancer. That's right, wind cancer. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. The first climate hero today is Galileo Galilei, famed Italian astronomer and my favorite historical figure of all time. In 2015, I was fortunate enough to travel to the beautiful city of Florence, Italy, and stand in the town square where statues of famous citizens line the central plaza. Chief among them, Galileo stands tall, overlooking the city. Galileo made great improvements in the telescope and is most known for his discovery of the four largest moons of Jupiter, now known as the Galilean moons, Io, Ganymede, Europa, and Callista. When NASA sent a mission to Jupiter in the 90s, it was called Galileo in honor of the astronomer. Galileo supported the Copernican system, which said that the Earth and the other planets circled the sun. In Galileo's lifetime, that was not a good choice. The Catholic Church taught that planets orbit the Earth, and Galileo's views were declared heresy in 1615. Oh boy, this isn't going to end well for my pal Galileo, is it? In 1633, the church tried Galileo for heresy. His accusers feared the truthful science behind his discovery. The church handed down the following order. We pronounce, judge, and declare that you, the said Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently suspected by this holy office of heresy, that is, of having believed and held the doctrine, which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the sun is the center of the world, and that it does not move from east to west, and that the earth does move, and not the center of the world. As the guards led him from the courtroom, he uttered these immortal words, and yet it moves. Galileo spent the last years of his life on house arrest. 359 years later, the church officially declared that Galileo was right all along. The formal rehabilitation was based on findings of a committee that the Pope set up in 1979, soon after he took office. The committee decided that the Inquisition acted in good faith, but they were wrong. We're not going to allow our government to place us on house arrest while the earth gets hotter. Just like the Catholic Church told Galileo, Silencio! The current resident in the White House denies scientific facts in our lifetime, not because he doesn't believe the science, but because to do so would go against him and his fellow Republican members of Congress' support from the powerful oil and gas industry and their lobbyists. History is repeating from 1633 to 2020. Have we learned nothing all this time? So I say to those who deny mankind is responsible for warming the planet, and yet we warm. Can't you totally see Republicans in Congress years from now looking at the evidence that burning fossil fuels was largely responsible for global warming? Pandering for votes saying things like, yeah, we might have been wrong, but the scientists didn't do a good enough job of convincing us. 
My respect and admiration for Galileo is why I give him a shout-out at the end of every episode. Galileo and I also share one other thing in common. We were both born on February 15th. Our next climate hero is Literati. Literati is a mobile app geared towards making trash pickup a community event. It's now easier for people to collaborate their efforts to pick up trash, upload pictures to the collection, and categorize litter with more tags. I just added it to my cell phone. I've walked past cans, bottles, and bags scattered all over the roads and sidewalks and haven't stopped to pick it up and throw it away. Literati provides a way for anybody to take a picture of that garbage log it into the Literati database, and throw the trash away. Try it and see if you can catch up to Miss Bettina Wolgamuth, oh boy, Fakunya, who is credited with picking up 725 pieces of trash by herself. She's the leader on the Literati scoreboard. Can you crack the top 20? I better get started. I'm at the bottom of the list with a big fat zero. There's more than 150,000 people from 165 countries that have already contributed to the database. When I checked the app a few minutes ago, Literati members have picked up almost 5 million pieces of trash. Kudos to founder Jeff Kirshner and the entire team. You can find them at literati.org and look in the show notes. I'll have the link. Our next climate hero is a drone that sucks up trash from the water like a Roomba. There's a Danish company called Ran Marine Technology. They developed an aquadrone that sucks up garbage from the water. It's called a waste shark and it can eat up to 50 gallons of trash in one trip. So imagine a whale shark swimming along, it's filtering the food, gobbling up plankton and small crustaceans. The prey simply gets sucked into its mouth. The waste shark operates just like that. The CEO of Ran Marine is Richard Hardiman. He said in, recently in a TED Talk, it's got an enormous mouth. It silently skims the water and tracks down its prey, keeping it in its belly. This machine eats plastic, not plankton. The waste shark can be steered manually via remote control or through a map on an iPad. They use it mostly for harbors, rivers, and canals. The company has already deployed the Aquadrone in the port of Rotterdam and brought it stateside to the Baltimore Harbor. The drone doesn't harm any fish. They swim away from it, and birds avoid it too. The waste shark vacuums up trash before it gets swept out into the ocean. Another climate hero. They're everywhere. Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. Our Climate Villain today is Rick Perry. Rick Perry supported Al Gore in the 1988 presidential election. In 1989, he switched party affiliation and became a Republican. He unsuccessfully ran for president in 2012 and 2016. He was governor of Texas from 2000 to 2015. In 2012, Rick Perry called for the Department of Energy to be abolished. How ironic that in 2016 he became, wait for it, the head of the Department of Energy. As a cabinet member working for the orange, family-separating, golf-playing, evidence-hiding, lying, cheating president, Perry pushed to revive the coal industry over cheaper, cleaner wind and solar energy. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission found that study that Perry used to present his proposal no good in 2017. A protester was yelling at Perry, saying that fossil fuels were causing climate change and killing people in poor countries. Perry answered with this mind-blowing reason to support fossil fuel, quote, Let me tell you where people are dying. is in Africa because of the lack of energy they have there. And it's going to take fossil fuels to push power out into those villages in Africa, where a young girl once told me to my face, 
One of the reasons that electricity is so important to me is not only because I'm going to have to try to read by the light of a fire and have those fumes literally killing people, but also from the standpoint of sexual assault. When the lights are on, when you have lights that shine the righteousness, if you will, of those type of acts, unquote. So let me get this straight. Perry thinks that fossil fuels will stop sexual assault? Hmm, maybe solar power might be a better fit for Africa. And lastly, tying it all back to my buddy Galileo, when Perry ran for president in 2011 during one of the debates, somebody asked Perry about the scientific evidence for global warming and climate change. Perry said, quote, the idea that we would put Americans' economy at jeopardy based on scientific theory that's not settled yet, to me, is just nonsense. I mean, just because you have a group of scientists that have stood up and said there is a fact, Galileo got outvoted for a spell, unquote. What the heck did that mean? Did he mean the scientific majority isn't always right? Well, of course, that part's true. But the people that outvoted Galileo were officials of the Catholic Church, not scientists. Another thing about his phrase, the scientific theory not settled yet. Uh, when are the supporters of oil and gas going to agree that the science is settled? My guess is that when every last drop of fossil fuel is sucked up out of the ground, they'll finally agree that the science is settled. Until then, it's going to be an uphill battle. The fossil fuel industry constantly tries to discredit climate scientists, and Perry supports climate deniers. Perry doesn't believe the evidence supporting climate change and thinks scientists invented climate change to keep big research bucks rolling in. But the truth is that it's the oil and gas lobbyists that are cashing in. They're the ones that are handing people like Perry boatloads of cash to help keep him in office. Joaquin Phoenix recently won an Oscar for his role in The Joker. That was a crazy movie, and we're not going to talk about that movie here. There's about 15,000 other podcasts you can listen to movies. This is not one of them. Phoenix is an active environmentalist and vegan. He recently produced a film called Guardians of Life, which you can find online. The movie follows a team of doctors desperately trying to save a patient who doesn't seem to be responding to emergency heart surgery. At the end of the movie, it's a little bit hokey, but it does leave you with the belief that we can all work together to solve this problem. Guardians of Life is part of a project called Mobilize Earth, which hopes to mitigate climate and ecological emergency by bringing together people from all walks of life. Instead of reviewing a book today, I'm going to tell you how you can get your short story published. Have you ever wanted to write a short story about the climate crisis? The new genre is called cli-fi, as in climate fiction. Climate activist Danny Bloom is the godfather of climate fiction. He coined the phrase about 13 years ago, and he's a great guy. Climate fiction books are all over the bestsellers list, and I'll talk about some of those books in the future. But today I'm talking to you writers out there. The Imagination and Climate Futures Initiative at Arizona State University recently announced their third Everything Change Global Climate Fiction Contest. The deadline for submission is April 15th. First prize is 1000 bucks, and nine finalists will receive prizes of $100 each. Submissions must be 5,000 words or less. That's about 12 or 13 pages. The contest is free to enter. Many of these types of contests include a fee, so get your thinking cap on, Come up with a great story, sit your butt down in front of your computer, and enter the contest. Maybe your story will be included in the Everything Change Anthology. I've had two of my stories included in climate anthologies, and that was a great honor. So good luck to everybody. Go to climateimagination.asu.edu 
and learn more about the contest. It's time to check on the world's air pollution. Today's a terrible day to look at the map. WAQI.info brings you to the world's real-time air quality index, and I'm looking at numbers all across the world where there are terrible places to be outside. The Canary Islands are the worst today. If you live in the Canary Islands, you shouldn't even be outside. I know it's probably sunny and warm there, but don't go outside. The east coast of Australia is a disaster. Even Idaho. Why would Idaho have dirty air on a Sunday afternoon? But let's try one more time. Let's go to our reporter on the ground. Oh, she's in, she's in the Canary Islands. Oh, okay. Well, please go ahead. We're waiting to hear about what's going on there. Be sure to share the podcast on your favorite social media channels. Richard Williams, better known by his stage name Prince E.A., is an American spoken word artist and motivational speaker. He's born in 1988. The name Prince E.A. comes from the Sumerian mythology meaning the Prince of the Earth. He graduated from the University of Missouri at St. Louis with a degree in anthropology, and he gave it a shot as a hip-hop artist. I'm not going to pretend I'm a big hip-hop fan, so I can't speak to his career or the controversies that followed him. In 2014, he shifted his focus from music to creating motivational and inspirational spoken word films and content. That's where I found his talents. His YouTube videos have received over 290 million views, and he has 5 million subscribers. It's a little more than I do. Now he's got 5 million in one. His videos include topics such as environmentalism, race, balance between life and work, and spirituality. What I love about these videos is that Prince EA and I don't have much in common except our desperate plea for humanity to stop trashing our planet. Prince EA is much younger than I am. He's an African-American. I'm so white, I got sunburned sitting in overcast skies shortly after Hurricane Hugo in the Bahamas back in 89. Not a peak of sunshine all day. We almost canceled the trip, but the storm passed and we decided to go. My wife and I sat outside all day, and the next morning I was sunburned. It's true. I must be the whitest man in America. Prince EA has a big presence on Twitter and YouTube, and 15 million followers on Facebook. I guess I'm a little late to the Prince EA party, but better to be late than not show up at all. I want you to watch three of his YouTube videos. First one is Man vs. Earth. Second one is Will This Be Humanity's Fate, which includes some terrific insight from a nine-year-old boy. And finally, you must watch Dear Future Generations an apology to future generations for what we've done to the planet. 23 million other people have watched it too. Turn off The Bachelor. Don't wait for Alex Trebek to die. Turn off Jeopardy. Turn off ESPN for a minute and watch one or all of them. Prince EA does not have a perfect background or history. Who does? But he presents in a clear, young, vibrant, entertaining way that will have you anxious to do something positive to change our world. And that's really the goal of the podcast to give you more perspectives from across the country and around the world. People are finally starting to see the truth. The Industrial Revolution gave us so much prosperity that many of us failed to see the negative side effects until just recently. Oil and gas executives have known for decades what they were doing to the world. They skipped over the dangers to pursue a nice career with great stock options and million-dollar bonuses at the end of the year. It's hard to blame them. While you're in the whirlwind, perhaps all you can see is the money. You take a step outside the inner workings of the boardroom and you're like, holy cow, look at this place, what a mess. We're partially responsible. Oh man, mom is going to kill us. Can you imagine if you left your room the way we treat the earth? 
What if when I was a kid, I stuffed all my dirty clothes under the bed instead of throwing them down the laundry chute? Yeah, that was a thing. A lot of homes had a square metal opening in the walls of the house that ran from the second floor to the basement where you'd send your clothes for a free fall, landing in a basket. So what if I took all the dirty clothes and hid them under the bed? For a little while, nobody would probably notice. Eventually, three things would happen. One, my room would start to smell. Two, I'd run out of clothes. And three, the clothes would burst out from under the bed and my secret stash would be found. Mom would yell at me for being so lazy. Dad would yell at me for making Mom yell at me. And my brothers would laugh because they didn't live in the house anymore. Being the youngest of three boys had many advantages, but the downside was there was nobody else to blame. There was never a question of, who broke this? Uh, I did. Clothing issue solved. What if I smoked cigarettes in the house? One, it would smell. Two, residue would either stick to the drapes or paint on the walls, and ashes might fall to the ground. I guess a third thing that could happen is if I burned the house down. We'd call that housewarming, not global warming. This sounds like my house was a microcosm of our entire world. Just hope and pray that all the dirt and soot and poison and chemicals will land somewhere, just not near me. Instead of cigarettes and dirty clothes in my room, we dump poison in the ground in the air. Dozens of years have gone by and suddenly people are beginning to realize the trash is out of control. The battle to take on climate change has benefited due to the ocean filling up with plastic. That's a terrible price for the oceans to take, and I'm sorry about that. But it seems to me that in the last 6 to 18 months, the world is starting to understand the amount of plastic we've put in the ocean is disgusting. And in turn, it's helping people realize that it's all connected. The air, the ground, the water. Just like my room, you can only hide your problems for so long. We dump our garbage in the ocean like, okay, I can't see it anymore, so it's gone, right? We spew all kinds of pollutants into the air, and since they mostly dissipate and we can't see it, we get used to it. Those days are over. Remember when Bill Pullman tried to motivate the citizens near the end of the movie Independence Day? He said, We shall not go quietly into the night. We have to credit poet Dylan Thomas for the original version. But come on, Bill Pullman's speech got Randy Quaid to stop drinking long enough to help take down the alien force field and let Will Smith save mankind. Michael Caine's character, Professor John Brand, used Thomas's line several times in the 2014 climate fiction movie Interstellar but his version didn't have the same impact on me as Pullman. I'm not going quietly into the night. I'm going to keep fighting until the lunatic in the White House is gone, and the new president takes positive steps to tackle climate change with the same energy that President Kennedy used to get the United States to the moon in the 60s. I understand there were military reasons to beat the Russians to the moon, but give me a break, I'm on a roll. Oh yeah, where was I? Follow Prince EA and watch the videos. Thank you. We are celebrating a special day for a very special man. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Michael Oppenheimer. Born on February 28, 1946. Oppenheimer is a professor of geosciences and internal affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and the Department of Geosciences at Princeton University. Oppenheimer has taken a leading role in various environmental and science policies, including contributing to the 1990 Amendment the Clean Air Act. He's the author of Dead Heat, The Race Against the Greenhouse Effect, written together with environmental activist Robert Boyle back in 1990. He's also the co-founder of the Climate Action Network. I also want to acknowledge someone born a long time ago, on February 19th, 1859, Svante Arrhenius. Arrhenius received the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1903, becoming the first Swedish Nobel laureate. 
1905, he became the director of the Nobel Institute, where he remained until his death. Here's the good part. In 1896, when Svante was developing a theory to explain ice ages, he was the first one to use the basic principles of physical chemistry to calculate estimates of the extent to which increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide will increase Earth's temperature through the greenhouse effect. These calculations led him to conclude that human-caused carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuel burning and other combustion processes are large enough to cause global warming. That was 125 years ago. Scientists were already studying greenhouse gases. This was long before anybody was lobbying the White House for an increase in coal subsidies. And how's this for a small world? Svante is a distant relative of climate activist Greta Thunberg. What else happened in 1896? That was the year of the first modern Summer Olympics held in Greece. And in an ironic twist of fossil fuel fate, Charles King drove the first gasoline-powered car on the streets of Detroit a few months before Henry Ford did. After his short drive reaching speeds of seven miles an hour, King said, quote, I am convinced they, the horseless carriage with a combustible engine, will in time supersede the horse, unquote. My opinion? I'm convinced that electric vehicles without a combustible engine will in time supersede the horseless carriage. It only took 125 years. That's a wrap for episode two. Thanks a lot for listening. And until next time, when we talk about fracking, good night, Galileo. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening.